What you have to realize on any journey is it's almost always better to have help rather than do it alone. The journey to better started because I needed to go on a journey. That it, 53 years old, by outside measures was super successful, but internally I was not. And I'm hoping that through this, I can learn to be a better person and hopefully just to make my portion of the world just a little bit better. I want people to know that A, they're not alone, and B, that we all struggle with where we are in life, how we are in life. We can learn lots from each other, ways to make our lives better and make us better people by being curious and interactive with others from a wide array of background and experiences. I'm Bill Lombardi, your host. Welcome to the journey to better. Welcome, everybody, to the uh, Journey to Better. I'm Bill Lombardi, and I'm your host. I have today with me my good friend, Amir Khaki, and we're going to talk about some of the challenges um, of peer review and how it can be weaponized against you and some of those, how that affects our ability to grow and get technically better with procedures. In the background, we've got our famous John Michael Meyer, who's helping us with all of our current technical challenges. Um, for everybody to know, neither Amir or I are representing our institutions. Our thoughts, opinions, and speeches are all our own. And with that, Amir, I'll do what I always do, which is tell me a little bit about sort of who you are, how you got where you are, and why this topic matters to you. And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so a little bit about myself. I was uh, born and raised uh in South Florida in the Everglades on a sugarcane farm um, in a small town of 3,000 people. I uh, was there um, my until I was 17. And then I went to University of Miami um, because for two reasons. One was the proximity to my home. And, and the second reason, because uh, we had a good football team. This was back in the day. Um, <laughs> when it was the you. <laughs> it was the you, exactly. And uh, ended up going to medical school in the Caribbean, um, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, my mother is uh, originally uh, was born and raised in Nicaragua, so I spoke some Spanish that helped. And uh, got into residency at, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Had a great time there. Did my fellowship at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I uh, did my interventional training at Lenox Hill in New York City. And uh, then I went and worked a little bit at Cornell in, in New York and uh, came to Detroit about uh, 11 years ago and been here since. So I've lived in a lot of places throughout the country. And I think in Detroit, believe it or not, is the longest place I've ever lived with the exception of my hometown. So uh, <laughs> that's that's a little bit about myself. And then I'm uh, married um, and have three uh, kids. They're at nine, five, and two. Super cute ages right now. So I'm having a, a lot of fun with them when I get a chance to. Uh, it's awesome. It's uh, quite a journey you've been through going all over the place and doing stuff. And certainly have seen a bunch of different medical cultures having gone to a bunch of different institutions. So it'd be interesting to sort of reflect upon each of those as we get into this topic. So you're you're very passionate. We've talked about this before, but for other people is you're very passionate about how peer review can be weaponized. So do you want to talk a little bit about sort of your relationship to that story and then we could talk a little bit of maybe why that's happening in medicine and then hopefully we can come up with some opportunities to help people stay out of trouble yeah i would love to um so i the reason i know so much about it is uh i was unfortunately a victim of it um me and several colleagues um actually had issues with some of the way care was being um provided at an institution uh, we were at and uh, our concerns were really regarding you know quality of care being delivered safety as it relates to uh, resources human resources so having enough staff to do things having the proper equipment having accountability and we would raise those concerns and the result the, the the reason to raise the concerns was really uh, innocent and they were uh, in the interest of our patients and unbeknownst to us, um, I think uh, as a result of our naivete, um, this criticism, although the intent was to be constructive, was perceived uh, later I found out to be hostile and threatening. 
And as a result, um, the administration, which they often do, felt that, um, you know, we needed to go. And um, it's hard to really get rid of someone just because you don't like them or like their position or their advocacy or whatever may be the reason. But uh, it seems right now a reliable way to get rid of people is using a peer review process. And uh, that's actually what happened to me and uh, three of my colleagues. Um, And as a result, uh, I've learned a lot about this process. And unfortunately, uh, in the last few years, I've uh, come to find that a lot of people, uh, Bill, that do what you and I do, who spend a lot of their time kind of in the deep end of the pool, taking care of uh, higher risk patients, higher acuity patients, are actually more vulnerable than you think, uh, because we're the physicians that are often going to encounter mortalities or morbidities related to our procedure. And um, we're seeing that quite often, uh, unfortunately, quite frequently in the last uh, 24 months or so. Um, I get, you know, um, counseling several physicians, a lot of them in various stages of their career. But the ones that really trouble me the most are young people who have trained at programs like your own and have went um, with good intentions to other geographies to help patients and only within two to three years be pushed out um, under the premises that they're bad doctors and peer review was used to facilitate their departure. And unfortunately, sometimes really damage their career irreparably. And um, I hope that, uh, you know, through this discussion that we're going to increase awareness and that this happens less and less to people. Hopefully, eventually we'll be informed enough that it doesn't happen to any of us, but it continues to happen now. So, you know, the, the interesting piece is to to have it go through peer review. That means our colleagues are the ones who are effectively weaponizing and destroying their own partners and their own colleagues. Why? What's the incentive for that? Or why do you think people feel the need to do that? Well, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because you could not have sham peer review without our colleagues being complicit in the process. A hospital administrator cannot adjudicate the quality of a physician's case. The only person who could adjudicate the quality is a fellow peer. And it's interesting. The answer to that question is is, is going to be kind of rather, it's uh, probably rather sad and sobering, but oftentimes it's driven by professional envy and economics. And uh, it's sad. I'm, in my particular case, I'm extremely disappointed. And many of my colleagues uh, who supported the hospital uh, when they wanted to get rid of us and subsequently upon my vindication and return to the institution, I was able to face them. A lot of whom I thought were friends, actually close friends and colleagues. And when I asked them uh, just a simple question, why would you do that? And their answers were quite interesting. Uh, Some of them felt tremendous pressure because they were employed uh, by the hospital. Others were incentivized with, you know, things that I think uh, really just, it's really uh, upsetting, but for extra call pay to be on reading schedules. So things that you and I would say we would never do because our value system, our principles, our dignity, uh, would not allow us to do. That was probably the thing that bothered me most. I have, I don't have a lot of faith in the, I would say the, the moral standards of of most hospital administrators. To be fair, not all, but I have tremendous expectations of our fellow physicians and colleagues. And so that really, probably was the most painful part of this process. That a physician, a fellow physician, a friend, a colleague, who I spent a lot of time with and, and in the trenches, who said, you know. Amir, I'm really sorry. I, it's regrettable, but I did this because they were going to give me more STEMI call. So that was, and then there's others who have other interests, such as it could be professional envy. It could be to eliminate a potential competitor. There's a lot of potential economic advantages for you to get other physicians out of the hospital. And I think that obviously that's wrong. That goes without saying, but the reality is it happens, Bill, and it happens uh- more frequently than you like. Why do you think I'm at the Why do you think I'm at the University of Washington? Okay. So, so 
two of my partners who were fellows at my program, who I helped train, who then I helped get jobs, who then I helped protect through the peer review process. They started a peripheral program, were the ones who threw me under the bus as we became employed physicians at my institution, making it increasingly difficult to do my job. And it's played a big factor in the reason I left. And these were people that basically had been my friends for a decade. I'd worked with them. They'd been my partners. I had done all this stuff for them. And I realized all of that was meaningless. And so I think you and I may have to be very careful in this conversation because I think we both have a very jaded or maybe realistic, I guess, view of interventional cardiologists and their compassion to other interventional cardiologists, right? Yeah, well, I don't. I say this, and I don't think that um, I, I'm not going to. I'm not jaded, but what I will tell you is, I'm a very honest and I'm very straightforward. And I will say this, uh, as it relates to interventional cardiologists, not all, but by and large, most of them have been cowardly when it's come to these situations. Most of them have acted in their self-interest and not in the interest of patients or their profession. And most of them don't have the courage nor the fortitude to stand up and do what's right, which is challenge the administration when abuse is happening, whether it be to patients, our fellow colleagues, or other employees. And the reason for that, I find, uh, Bill, when I talk to them and say, hey, why are you putting up with this? This is not good for your patients. This is not good for our profession. And oftentimes, it's the path of least resistance. Well, I'm doing good. Why should I engage in this combat? You know, I'm getting paid. I have a family. And they don't have the fortitude, the courage. They're not willing to make any compromise or really put themselves at risk. And they're a very risk-averse group of people. You know, you talk to interventionists, a lot of them, you know, are, you know, a lot of cowboys and tough guys and so on and so forth, all the personas that we're aware of. But when push comes to shove, I can tell you uh, what I've witnessed, unfortunately, is that uh, they're not up for the battle and they're more interested in self-interest and self-preservation. Well, it, it's interesting you talked about the persona. So I was going to talk about how much of this culture do you think is trained sort of into people to pretend that we're cowboys and cutting edge and have courage, but in the end, we that's actually a facade. So do you think that is just the human nature of people who select interventional cardiology, or do you think somewhere along medical training, we're either selecting for that or we're encouraging that behavior? No, I think that, you know, interventional cardiologists are no different than most people. And I think that we'd like to think of ourselves as, you know, somehow maybe morally superior or technically superior and feel good about ourselves. But the reality is that we're the same. And I think to answer your question is that there's tremendous hypocrisy um, within interventional cardiology. You know, we talk about, you know, caring about our patients. We talk about being the advocates and protecting our patients. Yet when push comes to shove, you don't see that. You see a lot of talk and very little action. And when you try to even, uh, you know, corral uh, our, our colleagues and say, okay, I understand that you're not willing to fight this fight, but why don't we do it together in hopes of being of the group risk mitigating, you know, their inability or unwillingness uh, to move forward. And I still have not been successful in doing that. So a lot of the, the battles that I've had have been really on my own, uh, potentially with one or two other people, depending on the cause. But um, to answer your question, I think we have a lot of hypocrisy and we should address that, you know. We can't sit at the podium and talk about, you know, how wonderful we are and how we did this for the patient and that for the patient, when at every day at most institutions in this country, we see wrongdoing happening. We need right. to stand up collectively and say, hey, this is wrong. We shouldn't accept it. We're accountable to our patients. We all taken an oath. We're in this profession. Everybody wants to make money, but I've never seen a poor cardiologist. I've never seen a starving cardiologist. So if it means us taking less money to do the right thing, then to me, that's a very easy decision to, to make. Yeah, it's funny. My sister does medical contracting, and she, will, she starts with, you're all going to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the United States. Be quiet. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> but if you talk to every one of them, but if you talk to every if you talk to every other cardiologist, they're underpaid and they're poor and they're entitled to much more. Well, it's I, I think you just said the la the last one was the real issue. There is a sense of entitlement that has that I think is historical because interventional cardiology used to be a very uh white collar entrepreneurial specialty and as it's moved into an employed physician specialty that entrepreneurial nature and that ability to make that economic business model has changed and the funny part is you think that would be better for patient care and i'm not sure it was good for patient care before and i don't think it's good for patient care now because i think in the end the economic productivity model either way is what in, impacts patient care and you know i think that's the piece is to get people to stop worrying about their production and start worrying about patients and the other piece i think maybe you want to talk about this but is people as you said right good enough i'm safe i'm doing well how do we help build an environment that lets people be uncomfortable, right? Because the only way they're going to, we're going to change, they're going to change, the group's going to change, is if we are uncomfortable taking on some of these challenges, and some of those are the internal challenges to improve ourselves. Response to that? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think the, I think what we need to do is provide you know, there has to be some level of reassurance and safety uh, that uh, physicians need to understand that they're going to be okay. A lot of them fear for, you know, and I think of it is, is probably valid, they young families and so on and so forth, and they can't move and they have, they're geographically, you know, locked into a place and don't have any other options. So, you know, I understand that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty rational human being. But at the same time, at what at what point do you say, you know, this is not acceptable and I'm willing to sacrifice maybe potentially moving, which is not an easy thing to do. But I, I don't know the answer to that, Bill. But I do want to talk to you a little bit about you talked about hospital employment and the RVU model. I I don't understand how this is good for patients because I see it here. I'm in private practice and the RVU model. How is that helping patients when you're incentivized and you're aligned with the hospital just to do things? You're not incentivized to say, hey, this doesn't need to be done. Or, hey, let me talk this patient out of this. The incentive is do more and more and more and more. And maybe that's not right for the patients. We don't get paid to talk patients out of procedures. You don't get paid to counsel patients about their diabetes and their obesity and exercise and hypertension. You get paid to order tests on them. You get paid to do procedures on them. And no one seems to ever talk about that in this model. It's not aligned with the best interest of the patients. It's actually aligned with the hospital. The more you do, the more money you make, the more you do, the more the hospital makes. That's the reality, Bill. Yeah. But so I, have, I wrote down two things I want to talk to you about or ask you about. So the first I want to talk about is how... How little training do you get and do you think others get in what I would call soft skills, which is how to communicate, how to collaborate, how to build collaboration and leadership skills effectively. And again, administration is not leadership. We'll get into that later. But what I would say is, do you think a big gap in this is in medicine, we don't treat train people soft skills of how to have these hard conversations to prevent the bullying and and change the discussions around these. So talk to me a little bit about your soft skill development and do we need more training on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I don't think there's any formal training in medicine on soft skills. You know, we're trained to le read about pathology and, you know, pharmacology and biology and so forth, but I never had a class in medical school, never had a class in residency or fellowship about soft skills that you discussed. Another thing I never had a class on 
is financial literacy. You know, no one talks about that. At some, when I remember when I was coming up, if you, I asked a question, it was somehow, you know, shameful. We shouldn't talk about money. The reality of the situation is we need to understand, you know, how money works and what we should do with it and so on and so forth. And so there's very little education given to physicians as it relates to the soft skills that you mentioned formally. There's very little formal training on leadership, yet we're put in leadership positions without having these skills or training in it. There's very little uh, education for us about how to be financially literate. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for us to not only increase awareness, but create you know, within our societies opportunities for all of us, young, mid-career, older, to, uh, to, to learn these things, because I think they're critically important day to day. And when you, you talk about financial literacy, I'll, I, I want to just clarify, because it's a little bit, there is personal financial literacy, and there is professional financial literacy. Those are different, right? Yeah, I agree with that, you know. So, for example, on the professional side, how do you know your worth? You know, who's going to help you negotiate your contract? You know, what's going to be important in the contract for you? Is You know, what is the, the, the model for you? And then on the personal side, you know, you said it at the beginning of the podcast, your sister writes contrast for physicians. At the end of the day, uh, we are considered high income individuals in this country. And I think that's by global standards. And so you make a lot of money. So if you make a lot of money, um, we should understand how to invest it, you know, how to save it, where to put it. I mean, you've read all of the stories about, uh, you know, athletes all over the world who've made $50 million and the next day the poor guys broke, you know, this, it happens till today. And that's because, you know, there was no, no teaching, no literacy as it relates to money management. And I, I see physicians. Another thing, Bill, what's fascinating to me is I have cardiologists who are my friends who are in their sixties who tell me that they don't have enough money to retire and they're still living paycheck to paycheck. And that really just boggles my mind. How have you been working for 30 something years as a highly paid physician? And, uh, you know, towards the end of your earn your, your income earning years, you still have not secured your retirement. So this happens still, Bill. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'll put a plug in for anybody listening. So at, at the complications course, we do a fellows course the day before. It's a half, it's an afternoon. And it has nothing to do with how to do intervention because I think that's your training program's problem. So one of the talks, actually, the person who does my my financial team comes in and does a talk to the fellows about personal financial literacy to give them thoughts, ideas, and help them prepare to be successful. Because I mean, we've chatted about a little bit about this. I'm in a really great position because I started that journey a long time ago. And that's why I'm I'm four years from retirement is because I'm in a financial position. I don't need to work anymore. And so yeah. I get to start making my choices. And that gives a lot of freedom to be able to do what you want, not necessarily exactly. what you're being forced to do. Um, but the other thing I wanted to talk in this, and I think I mean, I've been down this road. I, I would bet you've been down this road. And I think it happens to others. But have you ever heard of the term moral slippage? Yes, I've actually heard the term uh, from you on one of your podcasts, and I had never heard it prior to that. I was very intrigued by it and thought, uh, you know, is this something that I should know? And uh, I tried to look up, look it up, and I didn't find much on it. So I don't know. Is that is that a Lombardiism? No, it's it's an actual. It was from one of the leadership books I read and one of the okay. self help books. So, moral slippage is effectively what you will do is just like you're talking about your colleagues. Like we all start, we want to take care of patients, we want to help, but somehow over time, for whatever reason, we start to have cognitive dissonance about that discussion. So. You may say, well, I'll, I'll read this or I'll order that test or I'll not send this person to that or I'll send that person to that. And you're doing it sort of not because it's truly evil, but it's just this is a simpler pathway. It's an easier thing. I don't have to fight. And what happens is so that's a, you're, you just instead of beholding your values, you took a little chunk out of your values. 
Okay. And, and then what happens is then you take another little chunk and another little chunk. And over time, what happens is you'll wake up one day, or in the case of a lot, I think, of our profession, they never wake up, which is the person that you, the idealistic, thoughtful, caring human that started medical school has become a sour, employed, knock out the RVU, really not that caring person. And it wasn't by intention. It was just little, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Does that, do you see that in our profession? Do you think I'm onto something there? And if so, do you want to expand on that a little more? Yeah, you know, um, as you describe it, yeah, I do see that, unfortunately. And I think the key is sometimes the intent is not, is not, not really malicious, but I think you said something that, that I notice all the time. It's, uh, I don't have to fight in the path of least resistance. So you could take a path of least resistance. You're not harming anyone. And that's how we justify it, you know? And I see that all the time. And it's interesting because even myself, as I witness it, I'm not that critical of it. So subconsciously, just because it's not egregious, maybe you don't think, it's as bad as some someone doing something negligent, for example. Someone orders an extra, you know, uh, uh, an inappropriate nuclear stress test on a 78-year-old guy, atypical chest pain, you know it's nothing. Uh, you know, that happens, and I probably wouldn't be critical on that uh, of that position. If the same person ordered a nuclear stress test on an atypical patient who has risk factors and they're 28 years old and subjects them to radiation, then I would say, you know, that to me would be more negligent and that would be, you know, blatant. So that line of moral slippage, I could see what you're alluding to. And I, I'm a human being and I could, I'm thinking of myself trying to be self-critical. I've, I've done that myself in my practice, to be honest oh, with like, you. Yeah. I mean, when I was running my group, I, I totally went down that path. That's why I, it's sort of, I mean, I know I've lived that experience. Um, yes. You know, I, I, and I want to be careful Right. I, I, I really, when I, I hate, I, I don't hate using the term negligent always gets me a little, cause it's a legal definition. So okay. it, it just gets my hair up a little bit. Your lawyer probably okay. would not be happy to have you say that. <laughs> okay. But I, but I'll, I, I'll try not to use it. Well, it's, it's a soft skill. It's the, you know, we're not trying to, I, the goal here is not to go out and bash the profession. I think Correct. the goal here is to help the profession recognize that it's being, turned into something that it's not, right? Correct. So when you're counseling some of these younger people, what advice are you giving them to, you know, it's it's almost by the time they're talking to you, the cats, you know, it's the, the cows out of the out of the corral, right? The horse out of the barn or whatever you want to use, but trying to get some farmer thing for you. But you know, the by the time they're talking to you, what advice are you trying to give them to help deal with this stuff, right? Because, I mean, it really can haunt you forever. No, it's, it's the moral, you know, these uh, people are very impressionable. They're young. They're uh, they're idealists. They've had great training. They're very skillful. They're thoughtful. And my primary concern when I talk to them is, hey, guys, you're a good doctor. You don't have to convince me of that. Um, and a lot, there's a lot of from them there's they feel not only vulnerable but they also start to have insecurities and question themselves and their skills and their training i always reassure reassure them that's not the issue oftentimes we'll talk about that and i'll find that they're very good doctors and they did appropriate stuff but when i'm counseling them my biggest concern is is their livelihood and their future a future ability to work and so i try to counsel them to mitigate as much risk as possible to anything that would diminish your opportunity to make a good living uh, after you leave this place. Because obviously, well, at this level, they're getting pushed out and it, the decision has already been made. And now it's really just damage control and trying to get them out of there safely enough so that they could go work somewhere else and take care of their families. And that's often what I've tried to help people. And to be honest, with you, we've been very successful just by a couple of these podcasts and lectures that I've done. People have called me. I've gotten them in touch with my attorney. I've gotten them in touch with Dr. Huntoon. And I think we've saved a lot of young careers and a lot of heartache for people because just by increasing awareness, they're starting to take actions and mitigating 
potentially career ending uh, events. And I think that's good. And so, so that makes me happy. I do want to make one comment. I'm a very, um, I'm very proud of our space of interventional cardiology. I think we make tremendous contributions to humanity. We've done that for many decades and we continue to do that. I'm not bashing uh, the space or our colleagues, but I am uh, trying to call to action everybody that we need not forget, you know, why we did this. We need to remind ourselves that we should be the leaders dictating quality to our patients. We should be advocates for our patients. We should be advocating for our colleagues. And we're on the same team. Oftentimes you see physicians fighting with each other. We're all on the same team. Even if you're a competitor, even if regardless of our situation, I think we're on the same team. And I see see that everywhere I go, without exception, there's tremendous competition. And I think that's counterproductive. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I've been talking about that a couple of times in different situations. I think competition makes us less compassionate. And if we care about patients, we shouldn't try to shoot everybody in the head and get rid of our competitors. What we ought to do is how do we help each other get better and do this better? Remember, the yes. whole the whole purpose of M&M and peer review was not supposed to crucify people. It's what it's become. But it was actually for everybody in the room to learn how to do their jobs better and safer. That didn't mean not do their job, which is what it's turned into, but it's about how do we get better? And I think, you know, I, I think what you're talking about is offering up that, that mentorship and counseling to help people deal with this. The other piece I would tell you is I think a lot of people who run M&Ms and have a lot of senior people you're not the expert in the room. I hate to break this to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you actually, you know, you aren't that good. And so have some self-reflection and maybe get some outside counseling for your whole M&M to relook at what the culture of it should be to help people actually innovate, learn, and get better. Because effectively what you, what you get people bashed for is doing something. Correct. But I and you know this, right? The acts of omission are almost always way more costly than the acts of commission. But exactly. the acts of commission are so much easier to crucify because we don't track the outcomes of what people don't do. And that to me is a big problem. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And uh Bill, there actually is data, a scientific data in literature. I know Jay Geary has published in this space. There's a phenomenon known as risk aversion. You're very well aware of it and public reporting and the the unintentional consequences of public reporting are real. And I think there's the only way to understand that is if you understand commission and 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 oh and omission. And if you understand that Jamie, sorry Amir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you understand that, you're absolutely right. You know, you could get away with a lot by just saying, I'm not doing this. And the paradox, and I say this all the time to the fellows, it's interesting. If you look at the appropriate use criteria, Bill, you know this better than everyone. This is the paradox in interventional cardiology, and it's the truth, and people may not want to hear it. The people who are most likely to benefit from what we do are often the least likely to get it. And the people who are the least likely to benefit, mid-right coronary artery, 70% lesion, everybody is going to send that all day, every day, pat themselves on the back and go home, okay? And we can talk and about whether not, that helped the patient or not. This, and they're going to underdeploy the stent and give somebody a worse disease. Exactly. So but you that's give them financially stent good, But that's financially good for everybody but the patient because your restenosis gives you another procedure in the hospital, another procedure. Well, it's not only financially good, the risk of doing a type A lesion in a mid-right corneal artery is very, very low. Right. Okay. And so people look at that lesion, it's very low risk, it's high reward economically. As it relates to the patient, the jury's out. Did we help or did we potentially did we hurt the patient? That happens every single day in every cath lab in this country. Now, if you have a patient, like I did a case last night, I got a transfer, a 44-year-old guy who had uh, was found agonal by his wife and young children, took him into the hospital. He was at another hospital. He has end-stage coronary disease. LAD was occluded, right was occluded, living off a tiny circ. He's on impella, cardiogenic shock. And they called me 
at 11 o'clock instead of myocardiogenic shock. The impella's not helping. They, I said, okay, they flew him over on a helicopter, and I spent three hours, you know, putting this guy on ECMO, who I thought was probably brain dead, but he had a five-year-old son, and he had a wife who witnessed this. The good news is uh, his lactate cleared, and this morning he's following command, so he may, he may or may not live. We'll see. He's on ECMO. But the answer, but, but like that, like that particular case right there, there's very little economic value for going in to do that case. It's very labor intensive, and I'm open. I'm going to be opening myself to tremendous criticism if this guy dies. And there's a high likelihood he's going to die. I calculated his save score. He has an in-hospital mortality of 72 percent. And people are going to say, gonna, "What are you doing?" Right. Except he was going to die anyway. Why? What's wrong with trying to save? That's your job, yes. right? Correct. But the easier thing to say is, you know what? His mortality is prohibitive. I'm sorry. There's not much we can do. That's the easier thing. And that's the path of least resistance. And that's what happens a lot of times, Bill. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think you and I are very aligned on this is the culture change that I think we're trying to lead, right? Yeah. I mean, I think what's even more interesting when you talk about public reporting and risk aversion, what's really interesting now is you're seeing institution Q&A, peer review, and, and the process above and beyond peer review, doing the exact same thing to local environments. They're actually so focused on outcomes because that's how the insurers pick them to pay them that they're actually hurting overall patient care. So have you seen that in some of your institutions? I mean, you've been through a lot of different places. Have you seen that or felt that kind of, and, and if so, how do you tell people to deal with that? I saw this uh, in, my, in my entire career. When I was a fellow in New, in New York City, I, Lenox Hill is in a very nice neighborhood on the Upper East Side on Park Avenue. And uh, nobody has a STEMI if you live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Okay. So you have all these fellows and they have to have, they need to be able to how to do a STEMI. Well, no one in, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan is going to have a STEMI, and they have Mount Sinai right there, and they have Cornell, you know, New York Hospital Cornell's right there. So, anyways, very little STEMIs on the island of Manhattan for for reasons because I, I believe STEMI in a lot of places has become a socioeconomic disease. So, what would happen is that we need a STEMI training. So, we had a relationship with which still exists today with the hospital in in Jamaica Queens where. You have a lot of immigrants, and it was mostly Southeast Asians, and these are young people with very advanced coronary disease. And I would go out there for STEMIs, and because of public reporting, I've been in cases where we've had a forty-year guy, forty-year-old guy on the table who was in cardiogenic shock, and the attending knowing if we put a wire in this patient and he dies, this is going to be a ding on him and the institution, and that would come into the decision making of whether we were going to take care of this patient or not, or try to save his life or not. So I noticed that as a fellow. I've noticed it here in Michigan where I live, because at one point, the hospital administrators came to me and Ted Schreiber and said, you two guys have the worst mortality in the state of Michigan, okay? We were at 3% one year, and the average was about 1.2, and you guys are bad doctors. And what are you doing wrong? We had to go review and adjudicate every single mortality. And what we found is that all of the cases that I'd say the majority of the cases that died under Ted and I's care were none of our patients. We were accepted transfers for cardiogenic shock. They were, and they were octogenarians that we tried to help and save and so on and so forth. As a result of that, Ted and I sat down. We realized that we didn't have a single survivor uh, who presented without a hospital arrest of the age of 75 and above. We put on mechanical support regardless of what they did. We had 19 of them. All 19 died. So I learned something from that criticism, and I said, if you're 75 and you're out of hospital arrest and you present in shock, unfortunately, we don't have anything to offer you, so we quit doing those patients. So that was kind of a, that was pretty constructive, but at the time, we were subjected to uh, to criticisms for the reasons uh, that I told you there. Yeah, and the, the funny part is, what if 13 out of 19 had lived? Yeah. You know, this, this is the thing I keep trying to tell people is, you to say something shouldn't be done that you don't know how to do or that you're not doing isn't science and isn't evidence. And that's, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. You're not going to get technically better doing exactly what you've always done. If you don't get coached, you don't get critiqued, you're not going to get better. But we've set up these systems to just make us worse and worse and accepting. I mean, 
you, you want to talk about the ultimate making us worse. You know, we get, you want to talk about the boards? <laughs> yeah, the boards. That's I mean, the boards is ridiculous, and the MOC is ridiculous. You know, these guys. In my opinion, you know, this is almost criminal what they're doing to physicians now with the MOC. It's just the, I don't know if you, I was happy to see, you know, I have a lot of respect for Paul's initiative, Paul Tierstein. It's amazing. Best grassroots. And I'm really happy to see, I haven't been too impressed with Sky protecting uh, or, you know, endorsing us as their members, but I am going to give them a lot of credit because they came out with this statement uh, discounting the MOC and challenging uh what the ABIM is doing to us. Yeah, I mean, what I what I wish Sky would do is, or somebody would do is, I'm fine with doing a yearly something, but it ought to be presenting your cases and being having cases presented to you and discuss about how you treat the patient. How do you do yeah. the procedure? We're not we're not a cognitive specialty. We are a technical specialty. Right. Um, but it, it, I think I find that stuff a bit interesting. Um, so going back to what advice would you give to people out there to help them avoid getting into hot water? I want to hear your opinions about it, and I might give mine. But I, what advice, right. instead of waiting till it's happened, what advice do you give people to try and prevent it? Right? You were talking to fellows. We want to yeah. help the fellows do better. What do you tell them to help avoid it? Okay, that's great. So how do you avoid this stuff? Number one, is you need to be informed, okay? Number two, you be a good doctor. You need to understand if you're doing something to a patient, you really need to have a very good indication and justification. So being a good doctor is the first thing. The next thing I would tell you is to have a healthy paranoia. I'm not telling you to be uh, you know, in a paranoid fugue, but have a healthy paranoia. Show up to every peer review, understand you know, the dynamics of what's going on there, be cognizant of your complication rate, if your complications rates are high or your mortality rate is high, you should, you know, be able to check yourself, ask for help, have mentorship, so on and so forth. So I think a lot of it is our, we have to have some insight about uh, what we're doing and our own outcomes and, um, and understand the rules that we're playing by that. That's what I would, uh, that's what I was in, would encourage people when I talk to, to a lot of these young fellows who are really good and talented and want to save the world is you guys, you got to understand the dynamics of where you are. Do you have institutional support? Do you have support within your section? And if you don't, then you're in a hostile environment. It doesn't matter how good you are, Bill. Um, you're subjecting yourself potentially to harm. Uh, you're one of the best operators in the world. And you're telling me it happened to you. I, I could tell you countless people who are extremely talented, who've had illustrious careers, who have uh, gone through the same thing. So. Sometimes we think, you know, for example, Bill Lombardi's untouchable because, you know, he's the master. I don't know if that's true. It's not true. The, the other way that outside of peer review, the other way they get you is an HR violation. That's, think, why oh, that's really, an easy way. Yeah. You've yeah, got to really, really manage your emotions. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think the, the advice that I give people is, one, read How to Win Friends and Influence Others. Two, read Daring Greatly. Three, read good to great. Because what you have to understand is you've got to go in and build a culture that's going to let you do what you were trained to do. And you also, when you're looking at jobs, you really need to look at what is the culture. And the way you learn that actually is you listen to the CT surgeons, you listen to the cath lab staff, and you listen to the nurses. Because yeah. the docs are going to, you know, and the last people that are ever going to be on your side or other interventional cardiologists. So yes. I always say the, the most important relationship to have is with CT surgery and then the heart failure transplant or general cardiologists. Your interventional colleagues are never going to be your friends. So don't even, you know, if one of them happens to actually want to be a mentor and protect you, that's a bonus. But don't yes. expect it. That's not going to happen. So um, let me ask you, I want to ask you a question, Bill, about that topic. Okay. What do you say? What would you? How should I and others who've been through such, since you've been through it and you're more mature and you're senior and you've come out on top, how do you? Would you advise me and others to treat the people who are duplicitous and complicit and potentially destroying and harming us? I mean, because that's I have I'm having a hard time in my personal life, yeah. you know, 
and how do you do that? I mean, do you find forgiveness and just never forget? Should we shun these people? Should we expose them? What do we do to these folks? I, you know, 10 years ago, I would have told you, like, we should publicly out them, shit on them. They're horrible people. And that's the wrong move. Okay. Um, I think there are two things. One, we need to understand that a lot of these people aren't doing it as maliciously as we might think. They're doing it out of moral slippage and they're doing it out of others. So I think the key is with a lot of these people is to be curious and not judgmental, trying to figure out what's motivating them, trying to understand where they're coming from. And it doesn't mean to get in a pissing match or fight or an argument because that's not going to happen. What you just need to know is where are they coming from? And by knowing that, that can help you protect yourself further. And maybe by finding some common ground somehow, you can get them to stop being assholes. Yeah. I think the other piece I would tell you for you, and it's the same thing I had to do. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. So I am in a deposition. And I'm going through the chart notes from my interventional partner saying that I caused this person's stent thrombosis and I never fixed the vessel. And, and it just this like horrible stuff in the chart, basically pointing a finger at me and saying I'm the Antichrist and I killed this person. Now, the fact that they showed up with stent thrombosis 11 days after the procedure and they didn't even try to open the vessel, they just gave up. Another discussion. What's interesting is, so I'm going through the deposition on this. We go to the lunch break. I turn my phone on. It's that person who's now left my group and is now in a group somewhere else calling me, asking for help to learn how to do CTOs because there's so many of them. And can I get them a proctor to do Stingray? Wow. That's ironic. Isn't it? Especially because the stanthobosis was related to a Stingray case where I was subentimal. Okay. So I have choices. I can be a dick about it or I can try and help patients and get them help. And that's what I did. And the the piece that I would tell you that you're going to need to do is you need to learn forgiveness. But you need to understand what forgiveness is doing. Okay? You have been traumatized. Other people have been traumatized. The issue is When you forgive those who did it, you're not absolving them. You're not making them, you're not making them okay. You're not allowing them to say that your crime didn't matter. What you're actually doing is giving yourself forgiveness to move on. Because by being upset continuously is only hurting you. And you wanting to be vindictive and you wanting to reach out and you're what you're doing is you're allowing the trauma they did before to traumatize you every day. And that's the last thing you want to do because you're letting them have power over you still. So what you want to do is find forgiveness in your heart for them and for yourself to let the trauma go so that you can move forward positively and they have no more mind control or mind share over you and your life because that will affect everyone around you if you don't get rid of it. Yeah, that was uh, very well said. I like right. that. I'm not, not, we're not going to absolve them, but we are going to forgive. Correct. I, I, I will not absolve them for their immaturity and my own immaturity. But I have to let it go because I'm not going to, there's a, there's a, if you want an interesting parable, you want an interesting parable? Yeah. There we go. You can look this up. It's online. It's about the lion, the tiger, and the donkey. So. Oh, I know. This is a great one. Tell us. Do you know this one? Do you want me to tell it or let it go? Yeah. I want you to tell it. It's excellent. So a donkey starts arguing with a tiger saying, the sky is green. The sky is green. And the tiger's like, no, it's not. The sky is blue. Stop. You're being an idiot. And the donkey just is vehemently that the sky is green. The sky is green. And they have this long argument. Finally, the donkey goes, listen, let's go to the lion. He's the king. He'll know. And the, and the tiger goes, okay, great. We're going to go to the lion and we'll let the lion decide. 
And so we get there, and the donkey, as soon as he sees the lion, goes running up to the lion and starts screaming, the screen, the sky is green. Tell the tiger he's stupid. The sky is green. You know, I told the tiger, and he wouldn't listen to me, so we had to come to you to adjudicate it. And the donkey's like, and punish the tiger. He's wrong. And so the, 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 the lion goes, you're right. The sky is green. And the donkey gets all excited and super excited. And the donkey's like, punish the lion. He is wrong. Make him punish for what he did wrong. And so the lion, the tiger looks, or the lion looks at the tiger and says, you have five years of silence. That is your punishment. And the donkey starts jumping up and down and celebrating, and gets all excited and runs off because he's won. And the tiger sheepishly looks up at the lion and goes, but you know this guy is blue. Why are you punishing me? And the lion goes, I know this guy is blue. I'm punishing you because a creature of your elegance and intelligence shouldn't get into an argument with an ass. And That's even true. more so, shouldn't bring that argument to me for a decision. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's correct. And I think what we end up is instead of understanding where the ass is coming from, and instead of understanding how do we help slowly change their opinion, we get into these arguments with them, and all we're doing is empowering them. And so we have to learn how to let that stuff go. And I think that's the forgiveness piece, which is, you know, getting in a fight with someone who's talking on faith and has no idea what they're doing, you're never going to win. It's a dumb argument. I agree. And that's, that I took me a long time to learn is a lot of times when I'm at the podium and people ask me a question, my response has become, you're Jewish, I'm Catholic. We're never going to convince each other that you're going to be the other. And that's okay. We're just going to choose to disagree. And that doesn't mean I don't like you. just means we're going to disagree on this. And that's fine. Instead that's fine. of trying to fight every little battle. I agree with that. So, so we're in about the last eight to 10 minutes of this. And so one of the things I always try to do, Amir, is I've had to ask you some really hard questions. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope people found that interesting. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I have uh, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, some of them you answered. I was going to, you know, I've been listening to you and um, I've learned a lot from you uh, beyond the technical stuff. Uh, and I've told you this and I've been very public. Um, you taught me some things that are critically important and I'm actually passing them on to, to countless co colleagues. And my favorite Lombardiism, I'd like you to elaborate on this because I think it's it was so impactful in my life and it's been very impactful to others when i share it and they're convinced i want you to elaborate on the one time that you said and it resonated the most with me about institutions and you said the institution will never love you back and when you said that um it actually was a defining moment in my career because prior to that i was willing to give blood sweat tears um, not only to my profession, but to institutions. Since then, the realization is true of what you said. I have boundaries. And since I've had those boundaries, I'm a much better person, a better human to not only uh, my family and friends, but also to my patients. Can you elaborate on that and tell us how you came to that conclusion? And particularly for the young people, for us to understand how important it is to understand that when we're young, as opposed to late in our careers. Yeah. I, I, first of all, it actually, and I, I wish I remembered who I got it from, but it was, I want to say somebody trained in one of the Harvard programs and one of their attendings had told them that when they were a fellow. And it resonated with me because what I realized is now that I'm an employed physician is my institution doesn't value what I do. It doesn't value me as a human. And that's, again, I think that's why there's a lot of burnout out there. And so what you what you have to realize is it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how many people you treat. Your institution will give lip service, but in the end, will always disavow itself of you and will always protect itself over you. And so it's really important to, to have, as you talked about, you have to be sort of paranoid about other people. 
you have to have realization that a lot of the stuff with the institution, getting upset, getting angry, fighting, working your ass off, trying to do this stuff may not get you anywhere and may not be worth the time and effort. So be thoughtful about what you're going to do in regards to your own institution, how you're going to do it, how much energy you want to spend, because it may just suck the life out of you. And again, it's sucking the life out of you and they don't care. Do you realize they'll fire you and never talk to you again and no one will know you're gone and no one will ever care. So you, you've got to, I mean, you and I have both seen this. We've seen really well-known people, their institutions walk them into one office, have a security guard grab them, take them to their office, pack up their stuff, and they're out the door and they don't have a job. So I think you've got to have some reasonable humility to just recognize they don't love you and they don't care about you. And that doesn't mean you need to be this, you know, I don't want you to get burned out and feel disaffected. But you just have to have open eyes that when push comes to shove, they're going to shove. Exactly. Does that, does that answer? Yeah, yeah. That, that answer is, I think it's, it's really reasonable. And I think it's important for people uh, to hear that because, like I said, it really impacted me when I heard it. And it's, it's real. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important, again, is it doesn't mean you have to hate your institution or fight back or be a jackass about it. But just it also means be careful how much love you try to show it because it's not going to love you back. I agree. I have another question for you. There was a book on one of your podcasts um, that you read, that you recommended and, uh, and I read it and uh, it's actually um, talks about, you know, what happens to our neurocognitive and high hand eye coordination as we, as we get a little bit older. And yeah, from strength to strength. And as I read that book, um, I, I understand in Europe, when you're 65, you can no longer operate. Here in this country, we don't have an age limitation, and it may be considered ageist uh, to ask people not to operate. Do you have any uh, feelings on, should we have limita age limitations uh, for U.S. operators uh, based on not only that book or based on some evidence? Um, or um, if someone's good enough, they should be able to do it as long as they want. Do you have any opinion on that? Uh, yeah. I, I. So one, airline pilots don't get to fly airplanes after 65 because of this issue. And I don't know how you define good enough because the minimum competency of our profession is so bad. Um, I, I'm not sure what good enough would mean. And But I, do th I don't think you should be allowed to work in a cath lab over the age of 65. We've all seen them. We all know it. It'll make Paul Tierstein mad as hell. Um, but the reality is Paul's not as good as he was seven years ago. And the reality is none of us are. I'm not going to get better in 10 years. And that's okay. The, the real issue is, I think, is to accept it, but accept what you should then do, which is not try to show how great your technical abilities are. It's share with others how you got there how you developed it and help them get there quicker so that they move forward. Um, there's an interesting Star Trek episode. I don't know if you're a very Star Trek person, yeah. but they actually euthanize people at 65. <laughs> and, and it was, a it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting episode with Star Trek next generation. And uh, the guy who played uh, Charles uh, Winchester on mash is the, the, the actor that plays this person who's a, super famous scientist who's going to fix the problems of their planet, but he's going to have to euthanize him. And I, I think it's, it's a little bit of a thing, but most people in our profession work past where they're actually still competent. And so you're better off quitting before somebody forces you to quit. And you're, you getting forced to quit is based more on your reputation than on your abilities. And I know a couple of really well-known people who ended up in really horrible situations because, you know, they've got to answer their pagers, then they got a little sleepy, they made some mistakes in the lab. Um, I mean, you can go look at Congress and our president right now. It's like, come on, people, can we yeah. 
you know, it's, it's, there's actually interesting, there's a GI surgeon at the U that's done this research and neurocognitively, every physician over the age of 60 is going downhill, right? 20% of people over the age of 80 have some form of dementia, 20%. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, and, and, and the key I think is everybody gets super defensive. You shouldn't be. It's human nature. It's life. Instead, use that as a way to motivate yourself to evolve. No, I agree with you. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on an email chain that Morton Kern starts, and um, he sends a lot of people on it, cath lab directors. I think you're on it, a lot of luminaries, uh, a lot of leaders. And he sent one out about uh, retirement, when is the best age? And I obviously I'm young. I'm I would describe myself mid career, so I just kept my mouth shut and, and listened uh, and read. And it was interesting, and I see this here uh, with my colleagues who are senior, is that particularly interventional cardiologists get tremendous fulfillment and self worth from our job, and outside of the hospital, they don't get that. And I think that the psyche and psychologically, they actually thrive in their life because they get the importance and the significance in the hospital. I don't know if we should have some kind of way out, you know, that's gracious, whether it could be, you know, them mentors, uh, you know, professors and give these physicians who've contributed so much, you know, to the field and to education and to patient care, a gracious way to continue to feel fulfilled and valued. So, that's an observation. I mean, you can't just say, hey, you're done and send them out to pasture. We should have some kind of infrastructure to so take advantage of all the skills that they and experience they've had. That's something that we don't have. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, I, I think there's two pieces. One is what you said is very true. Physicians get a dopamine hit from the patient interaction, from exactly. the podium interaction. And for somebody like you who's going up the podium, you've got to be very self-aware that that dopamine, that excitement, yes. that that's a drug. It, it is. can be very addicting. And I can tell you for myself, um, I'm taking a very active process in my counseling to define my self-worth outside of my job and outside of medicine, because if I can't do that, I will never be able to extricate myself from my job. And we as a profession lack the courage to tell these people they should stop being in a cath lab. If they want to keep being doctors and they want to keep talking at the podium about something they don't do or they don't know anything about, great. But you shouldn't be in the cath lab taking care of patients. And the other piece I would tell you, what you just brought up is this is a discussion that we need to have is you have to prepare to retire because if Correct. you don't, you're just going to work till you're dead. And I, I mean, I, I, there was a really well-known guy and I was having lunch in Europe and he's like answering his phones and I got to talk to the patients and I got to do this. And he's 68 or 69. And I looked at it and I said, and I'm like, what are you going to quit? He said, well, I don't know. Like, I said, listen, you have a choice. You get to elect who's going to take care of these patients and how they're going to get managed or you're going to die on them and they're going to have to figure it out themselves. Which do you want to choose? Yes. And he just looked at me, he's all flabbergasted. like, <laughs> I love you, man, but that's, this is the God's honest truth. You've got a choice. You can, you can facilitate or you're going to just leave everybody hanging. Which do you want it to be? Um, yeah. The, but what you said about the dopamine surge is so true. Yeah. And it's so true. But what I find is that we, myself included, um, lack the insight to understand that a lot of our behavior is driven by that. And if you take that away, you know, how do we respond psychologically? Are you depressed? Do you feel like, you know, your self-worth is it diminished and so forth? So I'm impressed with the fact that you have the insight and having the insight allows you an opportunity to go out, you know, fulfilled and in the way that you want. So that that's really good. So that's another thing I'm learning. So that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I would, would tell you is when you're addicted to something, drugs, alcohol, dopamine, 
you're a sports star, you're a musician in front of 85,000 people, whatever your addiction, rarely will you have the insight that you're actually addicted. And even when you get some insight that you're addicted, rarely do you have the strength of character to stop. Yes. And it's it's super hard. Um, and I would just, I mean, you know, I, I value our friendship and our relationship. And I would just tell you, you have a lot to offer the space. Lots of people are going to ask for lots of things from you. And I think that's great. But as you progress in your career, think about the values and the pieces that come with that and how that may affect your ability at the end to transition. I, I, I'll end with this one, which is think about the deathbed things. There's actually some research on this. Yes, I've read that. Yeah. And so I think for everybody out there, that it's when you're on your deathbed, what most people talk about is not that I went to the meetings, that I did this. Most of it is I regret what it cost because I had to choose one thing over the other, right? When you're going to a meeting, you're choosing the meeting over your kids or your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think it's really important earlier in your career to think about the deathbed regrets so that you can start actively avoiding them because then you don't, they won't be there when you get there. I agree with you 100%. Well, Amir, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Appreciate you as always, man. It's great having you on. To everybody out there, www.drjourneytobetter. Hope you enjoy it. Hope it's helping. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Journey to Better, and good luck.